0: amazed when I see all the incredible energy and activity that goes into different parts of the ministry that we don't necessarily see in here on a Sunday morning, but certainly in the children's room, and the students' room, amazing things go on all the time. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name's Gary. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and I have the privilege of uh, launching into a new series that we're kicking off today. And uh, I don't know about you, but I love summer. How many of you love summer? Just love summer. I was told when we first moved here, summer doesn't begin to July 5th, no matter what the calendar says, but I'm optimistic. Uh, Actually, I always like living in Southern California because of the four seasons. (laughs) You know, early summer, summer, late summer, and next summer. But we'll take whatever we can get. I I don't know why, but for some reason this year, uh, we have experienced around our place, maybe you have too, that uh, our plants are growing exponentially. It's not like we fertilized them or did anything different, but it's like they're taking off. And uh, in some cases, that's not been helpful. And I don't know if you've noticed in the plant world, uh, when these things take off, they can grow like crazy, often without intentionality. Uh, we call them typically weeds, or blackberry bushes, or nose hair even, you know, <laughs> or kids. This kind of grow exponentially over the summer. All of a sudden, you look, and at the end of the summer, they're six inches taller than they were, it seems like, just a few moments ago. The interesting thing, though, is this does not work the same way in the spirit realm. Have you noticed that? We don't grow spiritually by accident. It takes a certain amount of intention and attentiveness to become more like Jesus. Have you discovered that along the way? Now, I want to step back for a moment and just clarify The beautiful thing about the walk that we have with Jesus is that God gives us his grace as a free gift. We don't earn it. It's a gift that he gives to us. He accepts us as we are unconditionally. This is not about merit. It's not about somehow earning his favor. It's not about pleasing God or if I displease God, he somehow distances himself from me. Very opposite of that. However, in this series, we're looking at spiritual disciplines, some of the classic disciplines of the Christian faith. And I know whenever that word comes on uh, our radar screen mentally, we think of pressing in, something we have to do more. But what I want us to see is that because of our love for Jesus, we want to grow. It makes growth desirable when we see what He's really like. And so for these weeks, we're doing this series called The Summer Growth Spurt, and we hope all of us will will experience some of that exponential growth this summer based on intentionality. These disciplines, again, are not meant to make us holy because according to the Bible, if you are following Jesus, if you've invited him into your life as your Lord, Jesus has already accepted you as you are, and he's working in your life to grow you up. The Bible uses a word for every Christian, and it's the word saint. Saint. Sixty times in the New Testament, saint is applied to a believer. Never is a believer in the New Testament called a sinner. Doesn't mean we don't sin. It's we're saints who sin. We're not sinners striving to become saints. There's a world of difference between those two perspectives. But this morning, as we think about spiritual disciplines, we're talking about our resolve to grow more in our relationship with Christ. How do we go deeper with Jesus? So the theme I've chosen is contemplation, and a little later on we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, and there are communion tables throughout the room, but it's a time of reflection. It's a time to pause and to, and to think deeply. That's what I mean by contemplation. The art, if you will, and, and the commitment to thinking deeply, to paying heed to one's inner life, to grow in our love for God and for others and even for ourselves. It was Socrates, the Greek philosopher who lived several hundred years before Jesus, who made the famous statement, an unexamined life isn't worth living. He really hit it on the head, didn't he? The Bible certainly agrees. And if you go back in the Old Testament, some of you may recall the story of David Uh, David was king of Israel, but he made some miserable, bad choices in his life that caused him to fall into into disfavor with not only the people, but with his Lord. And and David learned later on, as a result of this experience, the importance of maintaining a healthy interior life, to have things going on in the inside that would uh, communicate to him through his relationship with God how he was to live. There's a passage in Psalm 139, if you have your notes, take a look at it, it'll be on the screen as well, where as a result of his experience of being distant from his relationship with God, when he comes back to the Lord, he says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I look at this prayer, and I've, I mean, I've read these words a million times. I never exaggerate, but I read, I've read them a lot. And, uh, and as we break it down, he says, notice, search me, know me, test me, assess me, lead me. It's like he wants to be sliced and diced every way that God possibly can. This is an urgent plea and prayer for God to really know what's going on inside of us. And I dare say it's a prayer few of us ever pray or at least we don't pray it often enough. I've been driving around Redmond, as many of you have if you live in this area, and and I've noticed they're doing a lot of building again. And and it's interesting to drive by these vast holes that they dig in the ground. And one thing I've noticed over the years, whenever they're building tall buildings, or when I lived in Chicago when they were building skyscrapers, it always seemed like they dig down forever, and then all of a sudden the building comes up. You see, it takes twice as long to go deep and to lay the solid foundations, and then the building comes up, it seems, rather easily. And if I can switch metaphors, it's like if we want to live dynamic, effective, spiritual lives, our roots, going deep with God, have to always exceed the fruit that we hope to produce. Yet Jesus says by our fruit, people will know us. It's that issue of character that we're talking about this morning. And we live in such a fast-paced, addictive society. There are so many examples of it all around us. But I was reminded of a, a Time magazine poll that happened a couple of years ago. They, they polled 5,000 people. And they were asking them about their busy lives, in particular about cell phones, emails, and the website. And here's what they discovered. Of these 5,000 people, 84% said they could not go one day without their cell phone. Anybody like that here? Don't need to raise your hand. Fifty percent slept with their cell phone right next to their bed. I plead guilty. Twenty-four percent said they checked their phones or emails every ten minutes. Now this is two years ago. This is an old survey. Now people check their phones every six minutes. So, you see, the issue that's raised for us is how is it that we live our life and not pay attention to the needs of our soul, which are huge for those of us who desire to be spiritual people in our relationship with God. So, as I was thinking about this, back in the 50s, there were two American uh, psychologists. Their names were Joe and Harry. And Joe and Harry got together and they came up with a little matrix or a a little grid, if you will, uh, called the Joe Harry Window. See, the name actually comes from Joe and Harry. It was their first names, but today we don't know it as the Joe Harry window. Typically, we call it the Johari window. And you may remember this from Psychology 101 or some other reading you've done in your life, but this is a significant uh, model to look at. So look at it with me for a moment. Across the top, you notice it says, what I know about me, and then right next to it, what I don't know about me. And then going down the side, what you know about me, and then underneath that, what you don't know about me. So let me just briefly explain each of these domains and you can jot in the appropriate word in the, in the relevant box. The first one is what you know about me and what I know about me. This is your public persona. This is what we see this morning. This is what happens typically in the hallway on a Sunday morning or when you stop for Starbucks in the morning or maybe get to the workplace. Other people see you. It, it is the tip of your identity iceberg. It's how we relate to one another and come across. But if you go to the right of that, the next box is a blind spot. Didn't know you had one, did you? A blind spot. What you know about me that I don't know. Isn't it interesting? Is this why we end up sometimes in conversations with our spouses or friends talking about somebody else? It's like we see blind spots in other people, but like Jesus talked about, we see the speck in someone else's eye, but we miss the log in our own eye. It's easy to do, isn't it? You see, we're all zero points of reference. That's the way I describe it. When it comes to understanding ourselves, if we don't have friendships in our life that are trustworthy, there are often blind spots. It's like, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Everybody sees it, but the emperor. The same is true of us. It's for this rather interesting reason that God put us in a thing called community. So this morning, I can look back and I can see what's going on behind you, and you can't. But you can see what's going on behind me and I can't. We need people in our life where we have these blind spots. But it's really the next two areas I want to focus on a little bit this morning. That is uh, life below the ground, if you will. That which provides ballast to life that we often don't fully understand or fully acknowledge. Notice at the bottom corner what you don't know about me and what I know about me. These are the hidden parts of our life Things I, don't know, uh, things I know about me that you don't know. This is what we call character. Character is who I am below the surface. Who I am when nobody's looking. But let me tell you what I've I often seen through the years and I've looked at this subject again and again. It's, it's an ongoing passion for me. It's the part of our life where oftentimes there are wounds from our early years that are unresolved, un, I call them unresolved sins of the past. Things that we've either done or more likely things that have been done to us. And I'll say more about that later. But this part we understand at least dimensions of. And we struggle sometimes to hold it down. But the reality is other people may not know these things. Because we fear if we share, if we're vulnerable, if we let others know uh, some of the brokenness in us that we will be rejected when typically the exact opposite is true. Paul says... God's strength is made perfect in weakness. But here's the other part. This is really the focus of this morning. The hidden parts. He says in his final category, these, uh, Joe Harry Window says this, things I don't know about me and neither do you. There are things going on in your life, in my life, that we do not on the surface see. That's what David is praying for here. He's saying, I recognize now my blind spot and the sin that I committed, and I realize the brokenness in me, but God, he says, there are parts of my life I'm not acquainted with, but you see those parts. Would you increasingly reveal those to me? Very interesting to me. Some years ago, I became aware that the first 25 years of the Harvard Business Journal, they discovered that the number one thing that top leaders were interested in learning was more about themselves more self-discovery, more understanding of how they tick and why. This should be so much truer for us that follow Jesus. Uh, author Larry Crabb, he's a psychologist and an author as well, he makes an incredible observation. This one's worth writing down. I can't remember. It may be printed in your notes, but it goes like this. Only Christians have the capacity to never pretend about anything. That is a deep thought. Only Christians have the capacity to never pretend about anything. But here's the problem. Capacity is like potential. Just because you have it doesn't mean you're living into it. And I dare say the vast majority of us never live into this. And so as Christ followers, we don't experience the fullness of what God has for us in the area of self-understanding and contemplation. So I want to spend just a few moments, I want to boil this down as simply as I can to two reasons that contemplation matters so much. The first is simply this, the danger of deflection, deflection. I deflect when I don't want to face reality. I deflect when something comes my way and I find a way to get you to think about something else or to get off the subject or to not look deeply into the need that may be being expressed to me. Paul understood this temptation. And in Romans 12, verse 3, he says this, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Then he goes on, But rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now maybe you'll circle that little word, think. It appears twice. And then circle sober judgment. These all flow together. Now here he's talking about spiritual gifts. But what he's getting at is that as we leverage these spiritual gifts... They only make sense when we leverage them in humility. That's what the word sober judgment means here. Think, think, and then he adds humility. 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 Something God wants every believer to manifest, but often is so difficult to acquire. I've even heard it said that humility uh, is not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. An interesting way to think about it. We have a campaign, Blessing My City, and uh, as we're firing that up again and thinking more about how we can be a blessing in the parishes that we live in, the thing that we want to drive home to all of us and to ourselves is, God, bless me, bless us, bless our city so we can bless others. You see, it's always got an external flow to it, and that's why sober judgment or humility is standard equipment for the person that seriously follows Jesus. Well, let me ask you a kind of a tough question. You don't have to respond publicly, but how much time do you spend thinking deeply? I mean, when's the last time you just took a deep breath and like David said, search me, know me, reveal myself, reveal yourself to me, Lord? Some time ago, I was with a group of, I'll call them high-octane business leaders. They were people in the marketplace, and I was invited to be a part of a, kind of a gathering, a seminar, if you will, and we got to talking about this theme and busyness, and, and I just simply described, not thinking much about it, the fact that for several decades now, I I carve out as much as I can the first hour of my morning. And I'll often be seen at a Starbucks. That's why I'm there. It's not necessarily because of the coffee, though I enjoy it. But it's because years ago, I developed the discipline of reading and journaling and praying. And now it's gotten to where it's typical for me to go 45 minutes to an hour. That's not a problem. But uh, as I said this, the people in the room, they were shell-shocked. It's like, ah, I wish I could do that. Wow, I wish I had time in my day to do that. I'm so busy. And and so I just began to talk to them about, how about developing a discipline of just setting aside 15 minutes a day? And by the way, that's what I'm gonna challenge you to do if you're not already doing it. Set aside 15 minutes a day, whenever it works for you, just to hit the pause button. Uh, The biblical word in the book of Psalms, you see it all the time, is a little word, S-E-L-A-H sila. It means pause. Pause and reflect. Hit the sila button every so often. The busier we are, the more we need downtimes. Now some of us looking around the room, I see some friends here this morning. We had a chance to go to Israel a few months ago and uh, this is my second time there, and, and traveling through Israel, I was struck again when we, you head south out of Jerusalem, and you quickly get into desert terrain, and, and there's an image that'll appear on the screen, and as you're in the desert, you look at that image, and you go, like, there's nothing there. There are no resources, yet we discovered people live there, and it's a barren place, and yet in this harsh terrain, if you read the Bible closely at all, you'll see again and again... God sends people that he uses to make a difference into a desert experience. Moses, the father, if you will, on the human side of the nation of Israel, Moses spent 40 years in the desert. In fact, he wandered in the desert for 40 years and finally came to a stop in the only place that there wasn't oil, which is interesting. (laughs) Prophets, the desert. Paul, after committing his life to Jesus, ends up in the desert for several years. Now, you may not go to a physical desert, and hopefully none of us will have to live in that environment unless we choose to do so, but you see, things become really clear in the desert. I had a friend who used to like to say, you know, there's nothing like a hanging to clarify your thinking, (laughs) and it's kind of like that, in the desert, when you're in the desert, There's bread, there's water, maybe, and and hopefully there's shade. But those are the things you're like trying to get by at the core essence of of survival and even self-discovery in those situations. It's why for centuries, monks and monkettes went to the desert to live there in order to draw closer to God. There's something about the desert experience. Now, the first four, uh, the four Gospels in the New Testament, each of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have a different target audience. I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but Matthew, he wants to wow the Jews. And so when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you see all these references to the Old Testament. He's quoting scripture left and right. He begins with Jesus' genealogy, and he goes into great detail. Then you jump down to the Gospel of Luke, the third Gospel. Luke is Dr. Luke. He's a physician. He's very interested in the human body. He's communicating primarily to a Greek audience, an intellectual audience. And he knows, boy, we've heard of the Olympic Games, haven't we? He knows how the Greeks valued what they viewed as the perfect body, the perfect human. And so a medical doctor writes from that perspective. And then there's John, the beloved disciple. And you've got to love John because John loves everybody. He loves everybody. So he writes in his gospel, for God so loved the world. But then there's Mark. Mark is the writer of the second gospel. Mark is writing to a Roman audience. The Romans, if you know anything about them, were very pragmatic often extremely cruel, attracted the strength and vitality. They had no interest, by the way, in humility or any form of weakness. And so Mark, as he writes to them, you don't even see it as much in English as you do in the original language, but he uses the phrase immediately, immediately, immediately. Everything Jesus does immediately goes here. Immediately he heals this person. And that's his appeal to a Roman audience that, you know, they want IMAX, they want Steven Spielberg, they want drama. And so Mark dials into that. They demand action. So he shows Jesus not at his birth with a genealogy, but he doesn't even start his gospel till Jesus is 30. And the first thing we discover is that Jesus is about to launch into his ministry and he's being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And in Mark one, notice the text, verse nine. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and then he hears the voice of his Father, his Heavenly Father. Because keep in mind, when Jesus came to earth, he set aside his divine prerogatives, took on full humanity, and lived in obedience to God, and God worked through his humanity and empowered him by the Spirit. The voice from heaven says, you are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And I would just say a word to every father in the audience. I learned this years ago, and it's so true, that all of us who are men in particular, it's true for girls too and women, there is this vacuum in us, in us boys in particular, where there's nothing like hearing a father say, I love you. Well done. I'm so pleased with you. And yet men, so often those words are hard for us to say. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about... He literally doesn't say, Parents, don't exasperate your children. He says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Because he knows how exasperating we men can be. And so, in this particular context, the Father is saying these incredible words to Jesus all before he has done anything. Fathers, I don't know if you realize it, but studies have revealed that we set the emotional temperature in our home whether we speak a word or not the emotional temperature is set when dad walks in a room this intentionality, this contemplation, this thinking about the impact I have on others is so important but the passage goes on after this, after these words of affirmation uh, which by the way is exactly how God feels about you and me, it says at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was tempted and tested for 40 days. We know the story. There's Jesus in the desert. But what I want you to see is after this incredible affirmation, before he's done a single thing, the very first thing the father does with him is tough love. He sends him into the desert. Now, here's the interesting part. In, In the Greek language, the little expression, it goes like this. Immediately, the spirit cast him threw him into the desert. It's a very powerful picture of not Jesus necessarily willingly signing up in his flesh to go into the desert, but of God by the Spirit saying, you need to get into the test. And you know, God often tests us that way as well. He knew that Jesus, if he was to be the benefactor to us that he would ultimately be through his death on the cross and his resurrection, that he had to handle fiery trials in a way that modeled it for us. That's why the writer of the Hebrews could say, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's Jesus. Then adds, for those of us who follow Jesus, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. God wants us to come. Jesus wants us to come. Because there in our tests and our trials, we will receive mercy and find grace. In a time of need. You know, in a church of this size, we don't get through a week without hearing of someone that's suffering a painful illness or the death of a loved one. We heard a couple of those this week. One sort of expected, the other completely untimely. Life is that way, life throws curveballs. So in our contemplation as we pray, the mature believer as they pray, and this is what I would hope for all of us as we grow in our faith, that we would rarely pray that God would change our circumstance, but rather we would pray that God would change our heart in the middle of whatever circumstance we face. Very different. Very different. Jesus never went around problems. Jesus found a way through. And he wants to walk through those challenges with us. So you see, I become a deflector when I react rather than respond to criticism that comes my way. I I deflect when I keep secrets rather than trust others with my secrets. By the way, we have a ministry here called uh, Celebrate Recovery. That's the whole deal, getting those secrets out. It's liberating. I deflect every time I say, oh, everything's fine when it really isn't fine. But the biggest and most dangerous threat of all may may surprise some of you. It's the the danger that comes when we start to feel invulnerable. When we feel, hey, I'm sailing through life. No trial or temptation or test is going to come my way that's going to derail me. That's the most dangerous of all. Gordon MacDonald, who I love his writing, Gordon wrote a book some years ago in which he tells the story of Matthias Russ. Now, Matthias Russ was a German kid, about 21 years of age. He decided brilliantly one day, at the height of the Cold War, that he would rent a Cessna, and he rented this little plane, and he flew it into Soviet airspace. So picture this. You see what's going on right now in that part of the world. He flies this little Cessna into the most... Um, protected, best defense air system in the world at the height of the Cold War as he flies along and he lands in Red Square and taxis up to the Kremlin, all the while not being discovered. Well, when that happened, everybody asked the question, how is that even possible? How do you penetrate the most protected airspace on the planet? And I think a Christian writer that many of us still read, he lived 100 years ago, but he warned of this danger. He said this, unguarded strength is a double weakness. You see, where we think we'll never fail, where we think we're confident, where we think, hey, it's nice if God comes along, but I can handle this one on my own, that's exactly where we often get attacked. The Bible says the same thing in different words. It says pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit. So let me talk briefly about the antidote to this issue. If the danger is in the area of deflection, you see, the power is in the area of reflection. Reflection is a proactive posture. Reflection is says, "Hey, I know when I'm starting to run on empty. I'm self attuned enough to know that I'm revving too high. I'm too busy." I remember reading a story about some uh, African porters who were leading a safari across some very difficult terrain and, and sort of amazingly to everybody, they were making incredible time and they were well ahead of schedule when suddenly the, the leader, uh, the lead porter just brought everything to a halt, just put down all the things that were carrying them just, and all those that were helping out just sat down. Well, the, the people that were on the safari were sort of stunned and they're like, Why is this happening? Why have we stopped? To which the, the the lead porter said, We've been traveling so fast now for several days. We have to stop and let our souls catch up to our bodies. Take a breath. Is your soul in sync with your body this morning? Are you here or is your mind elsewhere? Are you present in the moment? In thinking about this rather large subject of reflection, I just want to hit three areas really sort of quickly this morning. In order to grow the way I'm describing, to become a better reflector, I would, I would encourage you to think about these three dimensions of your life. Start with the past. I did this some years ago when prompted by a mentor, and it really, it really altered the arc of my life. And it was just it was sitting down, really spending a weekend. It took, it took some time. And just kind of writing and walking through my past. What were my parents like? If, indeed, parents were part of your experience growing up. For some of you, that might not have been an experience. You might have been adopted, so it's a different kind of parenting situation, or, or maybe you never knew one or both of your parents. But looking at your past, what was it like at age seven? What was my experience like? What, what was something that maybe wounded me that I never really thought about? And it affects me today because I've never done business with it. You see, there are twists and turns in life, and this is why at Overlake we so often speak of being on a journey together because a life is like a journey, The spiritual walk of faith is filled with twists and turns along the path. Our past matters because it shapes us both good and bad. And so here's my challenge in this area. Take time to acknowledge the experiences that have shaped you. It will make an incredible difference in your life when you look back and sort of retrace your steps up to this point. And then take some time focusing on the present. You see, every decision we make shapes us in some way. There was a city that I lived in, and it had a bar. It was a rather notorious bar. And I drove by it on a regular basis, and it always caught my eye because I knew a lot of bad things were known to go on in that place. It had an interesting name. The name of the bar was Choices. Is that not a picture of life? Are there not those signposts along the way that every choice we make, it can seem so small, but over time, it begins to extrapolate into a huge difference in the way we live our life. This is what prompted the late spiritual guru of so many of us, Dallas Willard, to say this. He says so often we think that spiritual formation is a distinctly Christian pursuit, but he said the reality is the terrorist and the spiritually mature saint are both equally formed. You see, you're becoming someone, whether intentionally or unintentionally. All I'm pleading for this morning is that we would become someone through intention and through contemplation and thinking about God's role and God's work in our life. Paul understood the pain of seeing friends that started on the journey well that then went astray. and In fact, he writes to Timothy in the midst of his own discouragement, and he says, Timothy, come to me quickly. There's someone that served with me. His name is Demas, but because he loved the world, He deserted me. You see, Demas got caught up in the things that were momentary and fleeting. And that brought Paul into great pain. And I can tell you, having been a pastor for many years now, the prayer of every pastor, every godly pastor, concerning the people under their care, is reflected in Paul's words in Galatians 4.19 when he says this, My dear children, for whom I am still and yet again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, that expression acknowledges the fact that for people to get to the point where they grow on their own, it it, it is not something that is necessarily a straight line. A lot of times we go through pain before we get there. So when you think about your past, my, my counsel to you would be make sure you include trusted friends on your journey. Don't go it alone. And then the future. Taking time to reflect on the future, now this is something a lot of us maybe don't do because we. We figure the future is unpredictable, even though a famous person said, I think about the future a lot because that's where I plan to live. Most of us don't give a lot of attention in a proactive way to the future in terms of eternal perspective. It was the great Russian uh, author, Leo Tolstoy, who said, the problem of the materialists, and that's what he saw in his day, a materialistic society, he said the problem of the materialists is all they see is what's right in front of them. But he says the spiritual person, the Christ follower, understands as they press their hand out, there's more beyond the veil. He's talking about eternity. And you see, our mission, it's around us all the time. And Pastor Mike emphasizes it so beautifully. Is to love God, to love people and serve the world. Because we understand that the table stakes are so high. So I would say, make it your goal to prioritize the things that matter to God. Make it your goal. As you lean into the future, as we, as we leave here this morning in just a bit, that we would think about what's the future and why we live and let that motivate us. Some weeks ago, my daughter was leaving uh, school early. She's in college in the area, and she asked me to come over and help her pack up, and I got there, and there were boxes stacked high everywhere. She's leaving early to go on a mission trip. So she was uh, having to wrap up her school projects before she left, and... Uh, Her mom and I were really pleased when she told us earlier in the year that she was going to take a course on C.S. Lewis. I I just salivated the thought, a whole course just being immersed in the writings of C.S. Lewis. And so throughout the term when she would come home or we'd be together, we'd take turns reading to each other from C.S. Lewis. And so as she was packing, she said, Dad, I'm still reading one book. Would, Would you read it to me? And so as she packed, I read from a book that touched me years ago called The Weight of Glory. And I want to share these words from C.S. Lewis with you because I think they so encapsulate the heart of what I'm talking about this morning. These words never fail to remind me how important people are to God or how important you and I are to God. As Lewis writes, and the words will be on the screen, but soak them in. He writes this. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to May one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree or another, helping each other to one or the other destination. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it's with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Then he writes these powerful words. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors." See, those words challenge me every time I read them. Because they remind me afresh that every person has a destiny. And so, to think about this a little bit illustratively this morning. Just a few simple reminders, just a few objects out of our life that so often become consuming to us that we think we can't live without them. One of those, of course, being a laptop or a computer. And just to show you how committed we are to the temporal, nobody would lend me their Mac this morning. They couldn't part with it. No cell phones up here either. And then, of course, there's the other thing the enjoyments of life represented by this guitar, just the playfulness of life, the fun things that we do, the experiences we'll get to share maybe this afternoon with family or friends, temporary, temporary. And perhaps most significant of all, but so often overlooked, is the reality of our time. Every person you'll ever meet comes with an expiration date. It's true. As I began to reflect on these realities, though, it prompted me to think again of Lewis's words. And when I think about what he said, it reminds me that you're not an audience this morning. You're friends and family. And my friend Michael here, Michael's eternal. Michael is living a life, and he's pursuing God in his life. And God loves him. It's why Jesus came. For Michael. When you meet Michael in the hall, he's not temporary. He's eternal. The same way with my friend Anna. I've known Anna now for a few years. She's a delightful young woman. Anna, it's really been fun to get to know you. And I want you to know this morning that no matter where you go in life, when you encounter hard times and you do something, even you blow it, you think, how can God love me? Jesus is not standing across from you. He's got his armor on you. He's walking with you in the midst of what you face in life. That's good. It's so important that we understand that. And then my other friend, Jim. Jim's been on the road a longer time. Not as long as me. He's got more miles on him than Anna or Michael. And you've walked with the Lord a long time, and God has honored you, and God loves you. You're eternal. And we could go around putting tags on everybody in this room this morning. And so this morning, as we come in just a moment, thank you all, you can be seated. As we come this morning to the table, I, I want us to do it just a little bit differently. To understand that when Jesus said his final goodbyes to his disciples before he went to the agony of the cross, he didn't spend the moment with them, he spent hours with them, just unpacking what they had learned. And he told them in the midst of that, that you're incredibly valuable to me. All the things that I've done for you, now I want you to do that for others. And now 20 centuries later, you and I are a reflection of Jesus' followers' obedience. And so this morning as we come to the Lord's table, and we call it the Lord's table because this is a place for those of us that have invited Jesus to be central to our life. As we come to the table this morning in the front or in the back, and we partake those elements, the bread and the cup, I want you to go back to your seats, but I want you to linger just a moment longer to think about the words that that, uh, David said, Lord, search me, test me know me, reveal my heart." And along the way, John's going to lead us a little bit to give us a moment of reflection. And as he sings, just listen to the lyrics of this song. Right now, I want to invite you to stand with me. And as we come to the Lord's table, receive his blessing, receive his grace, and know what really matters to God, that we let him see the secrets of our life, the parts of us that we never understood. But more than anything, to know that his love for us, for people, is eternal. It's what we're all about.